When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are those, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Our Father, we approach your word, the very words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as he spoke him in the synagogue of Capernaum years ago, and as he spoke them to that close circle of twelve, his apostles, the messengers that will help the founding of the church. Lord, we hear his words. And like the disciples of old, we are perplexed many times by them. And so we turn to you to ask you by your Spirit, who inspired these words to be written down for our edification, that he would open up our understanding to what our Lord Christ has said about himself, and that we would not be those who disbelieve or grumble, but we those who believe and rejoice in the truth that is found in you, our God and our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Eating is essential to life. In fact, it's so essential that he who does not eat and persists in not consuming food and drink will soon die. That's true that if you have some body weight on you, you might can last a few weeks without eating, though you'll become extremely weak. But you can't last very many days without water, without drink. You will die. Because food is absolutely essential to life. Food provides nourishment for all the cells of our body. It provides energy for the body in all of its parts. Food consumed and digested, both consumed and digested, enables us to move, enables us to think, 
enables us to be active. In short, it enables us to be alive. Now, pictures of food is on a menu or in a magazine can awaken a desire to eat. And in fact, food, when served with an appealing presentation on your table, may increase one's appetite and even heighten the pleasure of eating. But the most wonderful picture of food or a most pleasing presentation of a plate of food will not satisfy. It will not provide energy or life. Food, to be of any benefit, must be eaten. It must be consumed, and it must be digested. Eating is a very complex process. One begins the activity by taking food into one's mouth, chewing it when necessary, swallowing it so that it goes to the stomach via the esophagus where it gets mixed with various acids and stirred around so they can be digested. And after it's turned into a liquid, it can be absorbed into the bloodstream and taken for nourishment to all the body cells. Yes, taking food and drink into one's body is essential to physical and mental life. The Bible tells us that taking God's word into our minds and hearts is essential for spiritual life and development. Moses reminded the Hebrew people after God had sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness supernaturally by supplied manna, he wrote or said these words to them, he wrote down, he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. And this scripture word is so important that Jesus quotes it to Satan in his temptation ordeal recorded for us in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. At the commencement of Jesus' closing period of ministry, either a year and a half or maybe a year to six months, out of his period of ministry, very active ministry, that he had engaged in because of his compassion for people. He healed many, and on the occasion that we've been studying for the past month, he fed a multitude of people, at least 5,000 men plus women and children. He fed them miraculously by the multiplication of bread and fish in his hand. You remember the story that he saw this great horde of people coming toward him and he asked Philip, where are we going to get the bread for all these people? He wrote that earlier before they arrived. And Philip said, we don't have enough money to buy food for all these people. And Andrew volunteered at some point, well, there's a little boy here. He has five little loaves of bread. We'll call them biscuits, okay? And two small fish. That's all the supply they had. But Jesus took that little 
He held it up before God the Father and he said a prayer of thanksgiving. And after he had told his disciples to, to separate the crowd into groups of 50 and 100, he began to give bread and fish to his disciples who in addition took them probably in baskets and began to distribute it to the various groups of people until all of the 5,000 plus had been fed. Not just a little bit, but the scripture said they were fully satisfied. They kept eating until they couldn't hold any more. And it was good. Let me tell you, when Jesus makes bread and when he multiplies it, it's going to be the best bread you've ever eaten. That's what happened on this particular occasion. But you remember the story that the people began to recognize this must be the prophet that Moses prophesied would come. Come, let's make him our king. Now, this was an act of sedition against the Roman authorities that ruled over Palestine or Israel in those days. Jesus did not come here to be a political savior in the old world order. He came to be a redeemer of a group of people, both Jew and Gentile, that would constitute his church. And they would be prepared for a new heaven and a new earth. As he told Pilate later, my kingdom is not of this world. Though it's in this world, in its mystery form, it is not of this world. And so Jesus withdrew. He withdrew on further up into the mountain. He sent his disciples away in the boats because they would have been very anxious to make him king as well. He thwarted this seditious act. He sent them away. The crowd saw them leave. They saw Jesus ascend the mountain. They go over to the other side because they saw them that the boat had gone and they knew there was only one place for the boat to go, across the lake. It's about a mile or two across that lake. But they went to Capernaum, so they had to walk. And some of them took boats because their boats that came were like boat taxis and took them across to the other side. So now we have a great group of people who've gathered in Capernaum and there they find Jesus. And we have this, what's recorded for us in John chapter 6, what I'm calling the bread of life discourse. Well, what I've told you, this story that I've told you, rightly evokes in our minds, as it did in the minds of those people, the image of God feeding Israel in the desert, which we read about this morning. Remember that food that they brought with them out of Egypt was soon exhausted after a few weeks. So they came, as usual, grumbling to Moses about their situation, although God had miraculously brought them across the Red Sea. (laughs) But they come grumbling. In fact, this whole chapter is built around the grumblings of the people and Jesus' response to their grumbling. So this image was rightly evoked in the minds of the people where God had provided mystery bread called manna 
That means what is it? This is the what is it bread. And they went, they ate the what is it bread for 40 years until they were on the border of Canaan. So now they've come looking for Jesus. You would think they were come looking for great spiritual benefit, but no, they came looking for another free meal. That's exactly what the scripture says. Let's take up the narrative. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? Now, Jesus did not immediately answer the question. If you'll notice, as we go through this chapter, they ask questions that Jesus usually does not answer directly. He either answers it direct, indirectly or he just ignores it and says what he wants them and what they need to hear. Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. That was obvious. Not because you saw the signs I performed. You're not looking for me because I gave you the sign of Messiah, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. <coughs> Don't miss what he's saying. You're looking to me to provide you another meal, a miraculous meal of loaves because you had your fill. Here's his word to them and to us. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, so you can maybe get a thrust of that. I want to read it to you from the contemporary English version. Don't work for food that spoils, Work for food that gives eternal life. The Son of Man will give you this food because God the Father has given him the right to do so. What exactly does God want us to do, the people ask. That's what they ask. What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, God wants you to have faith in the one he sent or in our translation, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. His response to them resulted in an almost unbelievable response. He had fed them miraculously the day before, and now they have the audacity to require a sign. <laughs> he had given them a great sign already. They juxtapose the miracle of manna in the desert to what Jesus had done the previous day. Jesus confronts what they're saying with the true comparison. Because you said, they said, Moses gave us food from heaven. I'm paraphrasing. Jesus said, that's not true. God gave you the food from heaven. Moses' part was simply to announce to you what God was doing. And even then, you didn't listen to his requirement. He didn't, he didn't necessarily say all this. I'm just telling you what was said in Exodus 16. That's certainly what is in his mind. That's what he wanted to evoke in their memory. And this was earthly bread that God gave them. It wasn't heavenly bread. It was earthly bread. Yes, God gave it miraculously from the sky. That's true. 
but it was made of perishable elements. If you did not consume it in the day in which it was given for you, it would breed maggots. It did sustain mortal human life temporarily, but ultimately both the bread and the people who ate it perished. They all died. He sets the record straight. And in contrast, he makes a greater claim for himself. Listen to his words. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We must notice the claim Jesus is making. He says he came into the world from heaven. This connects with John's opening prologue, if you remember, in John chapter 1. The Word who was in the beginning with God and was God became a human. We read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the people's response to Jesus. Sir, give us this bread and don't ever stop. Always give us this bread. But what bread are they asking for? Are they asking for him, whom he says is the true bread God sent from heaven? No. They want an always full table for their consumption. It reminds me of the woman at the well in Samaria in chapter 4 of John, who, when Jesus said, if you ask me, I would give you living water, she said to Jesus, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You see, what she was thinking is just natural water, that had to be constantly replenished, but Jesus was speaking of living water, mainly the life that God gives through faith in him. That's the counterpart of what these people are asking for. Sir, give us this bread always. We certainly want to have this bread. We want to have our table full every day so that we don't have to be working for a free meal. Both the Samaritan woman and the Galilean crowd were thinking only in physical, material, earthly terms. But how much they both reflect the way we are and the way that we think. I want us to look at this chapter with the grumbles, okay? We have the first grumble. After Jesus makes this claim that he has come down from heaven, what are the people's response? Well, the people say this. How can this man say, I've come down from heaven? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? They did not believe and they protested his claim to heavenly identity. 
Why? Well, because they knew his earthly family. They knew his mother Mary. They knew his father, to all their knowledge, Joseph. They even knew his brothers and sisters. Because many of these people were from Capernaum and from Nazareth and from the other villages and towns around. They were acquainted with him. Many of them saw him grow up. What does he mean he's from heaven? We know his father, Joseph the carpenter. Why is Jesus the carpenter retired now to become a rabbi claiming to be coming from heaven? Maybe you can sympathize with their unbelief. Because don't we often doubt sometimes the truth of God's word because we cannot naturally understand or explain all of it? Jesus' response is to heighten his claim. He doesn't engage in a tit-for-tat with them. He simply heightens his claim. He said, first of all, that he has come from heaven. Now he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread. He kept making these statements. You can see them. One, two, three. I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. Here's the clincher. My flesh is the bread that will be given for the life of the world. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You see how he's heightened, intensified his claim? Yes, I've come from heaven. I am the bread that's come down from heaven. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread. And my flesh... That is this body you see in front of me, this body that you're familiar with. My flesh is the bread that will be given for the life of the world. If anyone eats of this bread, well, what, what is this bread? Himself. If anyone eats of this bread, in other words, if anyone eats of me, he will live forever. Well, I... I I wasn't there to see them throw up their hands. But I really believe that's probably what many of them did. You know, your physical gesture when you don't believe what someone's saying. Well, that's probably what they did. They grumbled. But it goes further than that, as the scripture says. Let me go back and pull, pull out the scripture. Let's look at that verses uh, in First John, I mean, in John chapter 6, as Jesus is talking about this. I'm down around, this is the bread that comes down in heaven, verse 50, so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So you see, he's taking up the contrast. Moses did not give you the bread. He announced it. God gave you the bread. It was earthly bread. 
it perished. If you wasn't eaten in the time given, 24 hours, both the bread and the people perished ultimately. I, on the other hand, I came down from heaven. I came from the Father. He sent me. I'm the living bread. And if I am consumed, you will live forever. If I'm consumed by you, you will live forever. And how I do this is that my flesh is given for the life of the world. Now these are astonishing claims. This is one of the longest chapters in the Gospel of John. And I'm afraid it's one that we sort of run over. Because it's a mystery to us sometimes when we read it. It just is boggling to our mind. We don't admit it because we're Christians and believe the Word of God. But nevertheless, we're often stumped by it, scratch our heads, and perhaps we just run over it too quickly. Well, this did not end the situation because the Jews now dispute among themselves. They're talking among themselves. There's a great crowd of people. There's groups, little, little groups of people, and they're all talking. And here comes the second grumble. What was the first grumble? First grumble said, how can this man say he came down from heaven? We know his family. The second grumble, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What on earth? is this man talking about? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, notice that Jesus, he, he understands. He, he understands what they're saying. He hears what they're saying. But interestingly, Jesus does not give a direct answer to their grumbling questions of unbelief. Instead, he doubles down, as we say. He intensifies his claim. He words, his words are bolder. They are provocative words. <laughs> you know, sometimes we have the wrong image of Jesus. It's true that Jesus was a very kind person and gentle. He was very humble. But he was also very truthful very bold, very courageous. He was a man's man. Not in the false way that we identify people such as macho, but in a man who could be truthful even in the face of opposition, even in the face of ridicule. I want you to listen to his words in contemporary speech. This is Jesus' answer. Not really an answer. His bolder claim. I tell you for certain that if you won't live, that you won't live unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. Now he's claiming to be the Son of Man. I tell you for certain that you won't live unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. But if you do eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life. 
and I will raise you to life on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides, remains in me, and I in him. Jesus says that if a person eats him, consumes him internally, they will have eternal life. And they will be raised to life on the last day. They will be resurrected bodily on the last day. In addition, this feeding on Messiah Jesus results in a living fellowship with him and the Father now that will never be broken. Now Jesus will later repeat this profound truth to his 12 in the upper room the night before his crucifixion recorded in John 14, 15, and 16. John 14, 23 reads, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So this is Jesus' statement to them, Jesus' response. Well, let's see from the evidence of the words that we've read. If we can grasp a little bit of what Jesus is claiming and what he's saying. He says that It's his flesh, his flesh, that is the bread from heaven, that's the living bread, that one must eat if they are to have eternal life with God. Now, there are two responses to this, both of which I believe to be an error. We can say, well, Jesus was just being cannibalistic. And that's repugnant to the Hebrew mind and to most people. We don't really think about eating other humans. Certainly has been done. And certainly when Jerusalem was besieged by Rome in 70 AD, it did happen because there was no food. And there are those who say, well, okay, He's just talking about what happens when we celebrate communion. And so the bread and the wine become Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood. Well, that would be a continuous coming. Every time it's done, it's coming. But that's not what Jesus said. He said that his flesh would be given for the life of the world. And the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 especially tells us that this was done. It was done once for all. He gave his death, his body, his flesh on the cross. In his dying, our death, and dying for our sins, he was crucified. He gave his flesh. 
And that giving of his flesh is what enables us to be forgiven of our sins and to have fellowship and relationship with God as our Father. That's what Jesus did. But there are others who go to the other extreme and said, oh, you know, he's just speaking metaphorically. They should have, you know, caught that. Well, if that's true, why didn't Jesus simply say to them, I'm just using metaphors, guys. Why are you so upset? Jesus didn't do that, did he? Now, it's true that Jesus called himself the door, and we know he wasn't talking about being, uh, you know, a door of wood on hinges. Uh, Jesus called himself the vine. We don't picture him growing up the trellis somewhere. It's true. Those are metaphors. And it's, he's using images, but he's using images that are very true and that are very true about him. So it's not just symbolic language. It's language that conveys a truth. In fact, the truth that's so necessary for our salvation. Jesus gives his body and his blood for our life with God. He did it on the cross. And in the Lord's Supper, we have a memorial of that event and we have a participation in the life of the, re- of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. How is all of this done? Well, Jesus tells us how it's done. It's done by the operation that is the activity of the Holy Spirit himself. Again, the book of Hebrews helps us. Our Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, in the flesh of his birth of Mary, was enabled to give the atoning sacrifice on the cross by the enablement of the eternal spirit. And by the power of the Father and the Spirit, as well as his own power as the Son, he was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, the reason Jesus went under death is because he assumed our guilt, our sin, not his. But because he had none of his own and he had paid the debt for ours on the third day, he rose rightly, freed from the bondage, freed from the debt. And after being on earth for 40 more days in which he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs to his disciples, on many occasions he ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven how? It wasn't a ghost that went to heaven. It was the physical man, Jesus Christ, whose body had been mortal, but whose body now was immortal. But it was the body of his crucifixion. That's the body that's now in heaven in glorified state. 
He's the same Lord Jesus Christ. And it is from his life that we receive life. And how is that done? It is done by the supernatural operation or working of the Holy Spirit who takes that which Christ has done in his flesh for us, which has abiding and eternal significance, and he applies it continuously to us so that we are remain in union with Christ. You see, salvation is far more than justification. It's far more than simply the forgiveness of your sins. It is the bestowal of eternal life, a life of holiness, a life of relationship, a life of fellowship with God the Father in and through the Son, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us, applying constantly to us the virtue and life of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we eat Christ? Well, Jesus had already told them this. He told them earlier. That's why he didn't bother to respond again. They didn't receive, they didn't believe what he said to start off with. Well, you see, in the natural, man cannot believe. In the natural, man does not believe the words that Jesus says, and they do not believe the claims of Christ. It takes the enablement of the Holy Spirit, the drawing of the Father, because salvation is not by the will of man. Salvation is by the will and the working of God, the Father, through the Holy Spirit of God. He must draw us to himself. He must awaken us from death. He must enable us to confess our sin. He must enable us to believe. In making us alive spiritually, he then commands us, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. What is the mouth? It's the mouth of faith, living faith in the living Lord. Now our eating of Christ initially is certainly the sign of life. But the phraseology that Jesus uses, the grammar that Jesus uses, saying about the eating and drinking, is a continuous, habitual eating and drinking. In other words, it's, it's living on Christ in fellowship with Christ by the Spirit, who's continuously transmitting to us the virtue of Christ's righteous life and of his propitious death. This is why John in his epistle could be so firm in speaking about the assurance that we have as the children of God. Because what did Jesus say? 
when they ask him, well, what work, what work must we do to be pleasing to God? What did Jesus say? The work of God is that you believe on the one he has sent. He's pointing to himself. The work of God is you believe me. You believe in me. You believe in my person and in what I'm doing and accomplishing the will of the Father. Well, so there are two contrary responses, but there is a truer response, which we must see that what Jesus is speaking about is supernatural. It's not simply natural. It's physical, but it's spiritual. You see, sometimes we, we, we make a, a false uh, dichotomy, a false contrast between the spiritual and the physical. When we say, well, you know, we, we, we just do it spirit, that just means, you know, symbolically. That's not what spiritual means. Spiritual has as much reality as the physical. So Jesus is speaking about a living relationship that's supernatural, both in its origin and its continuance. Well, again, notice in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard this, the words that he had said in Capernaum, they said, this is like a third grumble, who can listen to it? You know, this is outrageous. This is, not just outrageous. This is unbelievable. I've had enough of this. So they walked away. It says that many of his disciples, having served this, this is too hard. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Because sometimes we do take offense at it. And that's because even in our interpretation of Scripture, sometimes we take offense at what he says. And so we sort of want to reject it and re redefine it. Take away the offense for ourselves and for our mentals thinking about it. But this is what Jesus says. Again, it's very interesting. Two things I'm going to tell you in a minute that you maybe you've never thought about it, but you will. He says, do you take offense at this? Now, speaking primarily to the smaller group, the 12, it may be a, a little bit group or a larger group, but we know at the end it's just the 12. He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? <laughs> now, there are two things that John mentions Indirectly, two events. And yet they're very much present in his gospel. The one is that G, the John does not record the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. But he takes us to the upper room when Jesus creates the ritual of the new covenant, what we call a sacrament of the gospel ordinance. He takes two elements from the Passover meal and he says, basically, I am now taking the place of what was symbolized in the old action that God did when he brought Israel out. I am the Passover. 
overlap. And this bread is my body. This wine is my blood. You see, flesh must be given in a sacrifice and the blood must be spilt for the covenant to come into effect. Now, it didn't happen in the upper room, but it was as sure as done because in a few hours, Jesus would be hanging on the cross and he would be dead and buried. His body had been crucified and his blood had been shed and the new covenant had come into existence. But John doesn't mention the words, but Matthew does, Mark does, Luke does, and Paul does, but not John. But he gives us all the other things that Jesus said in the upper room. And that was a long time that Jesus was with him, speaking all kinds of truth that they needed. Now, why would John do that? Well, we need to remember that John's gospel is the last gospel. When he writes his gospel, all the others have been written and are circulating. And and Paul's epistle to Corinthians is even before the gospel accounts. So that's the oldest one the record of the Lord's Supper. He didn't need to mention those words. He wanted to fill in what was not there, the instruction that was so important to him and to the life of the Christian as they live for Christ in this world. So he gives us other things that happened in the upper room, just sort of what we might call fill in the picture to give us a fuller picture. Another thing is, you see, the Lord's Supper had come into existence right after Christ's resurrection. They began immediately celebrating it. They did it daily at first. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they began to meet daily. And they began to have the supper daily until a few weeks later or a few, maybe months later. At any rate, it's for these reasons that I propose to you that John focuses in on the meaning. Now, from the beginning of John's gospel's emergence in the life of the church, John chapter 6 has always been related to the spiritual meaning of the Lord's Supper. Now, the supper had not been done when he said these things, but surely Christ knew not only that he was going to die, but he knew that he would be giving this ordinance to them. And by The meaning of John 6, we can understand more about what that supper is about. It's about Christ who died, was buried, and raised for our justification and for our continuing life with God. There's a second thing. You may find this unbelievable. But you know, John also does not tell us the event of the ascension, and yet John mentions the ascension more than any other gospel narrative. It's meant numerous times in the gospel of John. I counted at least close to eight, maybe ten, references to the ascension, including this one in front of us. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, you can listen to it. But Jesus said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you remember on the day that he called Nathanael to be his disciple, he also said to him about his ascension. He often spoke about his ascension in the Gospel of John. And yet John does not record the event itself, but he does give us great meaning that's attached to it 
And the same is true in his epistles. Interesting. But you see, it's the ascended Christ that is our Savior. He died in history. He died at a particular day and time, particular events is historical. But he lives permanently and forever on the throne of heaven in his ascended glory. It's from the ascended Lord that we receive our life. So Jesus goes on. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Remember back there he said, you're just coming to get a free meal from me, physical meal. But I'm offering you the spiritual meal that will give you eternal life. It's the spirit of God that enables these things to be true. But he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. He knew from the beginning that there was a rat in the pack. His name was Judas. And he was entrusted with great responsibility. He was the first treasurer of the group of the disciples. And guess what? He was pilfering from the, from the offerings that had been given. Hopefully that doesn't sound familiar. Jesus knew who would come to him. And he knew that the ones who came to him were, were only the ones that was granted to him by the Father. Those are the ones who hear and believe his word. Those are the ones who come to Christ and cling to him for eternal life. But now we come to the end. Because after Jesus has said these things, there's been stages where the people have rejected what he said and walked away. And now Jesus, this is probably not even the same day, but it could be very close. After this, it says, see in verse 66, after this. So it's not the same exact event. But after this, many of his disciples turned back. We know that he had hundreds. They turned back and no longer walked with him. They didn't follow him anymore. They didn't mean they, they quit having esteem for him. But they weren't hanging around following on his words and going from place to place with him. They, they turned back away from that. And so on this particular day, Jesus turns to the 12. And I want you to hear him. I want you to hear the pain, the suffering, the human Jesus. When he turns to his dear friends, among them was John, whom he deeply loved, and Peter, all of them, Philip and Andrew, he says to them, do you want to go away as well? Do you hear the pain? Thousands have walked away. Hundreds have quit following him. Everyone seemingly has gone. He's there with the 12 on this day and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? Do you also want to leave me? It's almost as if there's tears forming in his eyes. Will you also desert me? But here's Peter. He catches what his Lord is saying. He answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
There's no one else. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's even a stronger assertion than he had given a few months earlier or a year earlier on the shore when he had said to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Holy One of God. You alone are the source of eternal life. Look, if you, if you reject Jesus, if you turn away from Him, if you go from Him, there is nowhere else to go. There is no one else who can satisfy. There is no one else who can give you the relationship you want and long to have with God. There is no one else that can take you up, give you eternal life, keep cleansing you from your sin, keep restoring you in his love. He's the only one. Without him, there is no life. How much we need to understand that so that we will abide in him, dwell in him, constantly feeding on him by faith. And as we come to the table of the Lord today, and once again, we break the bread, drink the fruit of the vine. Can you hear him say to you, this is my body. This is my blood. Feed on me. I'm the life. In me, you know God. And in me, you will live eternally. Amen. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you to be our life. We offer up to you our thanks that you gave your flesh for our life. You shed your blood that we might be forgiven, that we might know the Father, that we might live in you, not only now with a joy but forever with fullness of joy to the right hand where you are. Amen. I think we have a hymn to sing.